0: So good evening again, everybody. Welcome. This is part two of a two-part series, and part one—it's—it's uh, it's a two-part series on sexuality, sex in the Dharma. And so you missed the foreplay. Oh, I hate this. No, I'm sorry. I <laughs> um, what what you missed was an overview that I tried to offer that gave um talk from buddhist uh, teachings myth uh sutra uh vinaya um, story um and and contemporary uh buddhist, uh mores and in, in as Buddhism met the west around sexuality uh from the most um from the beginning of the Sangha with the Buddha and the Buddha's um, emphasis on leaving home and then creating rules as people um, did things that he didn't think were so helpful or conducive to awakening. And so I talked about how all the first rules were around sexuality, that the Buddha had gathered all these young men who were quite in their prime and um, And then we're doing things that he felt weren't so helpful. And so teachings around sexuality in terms of monastic tradition, and then teachings around sexuality in terms of uh, the Mahayana, the uh, Zen tradition, more uh, um, uh, pro-sex positive um, uh, experience of sex or inclusion of sex uh, characterized by the poem. Um, I don't have it right here, but it's basically... um, observing the moon at midnight, solitary, uh, quiet. Uh, I saw. I knew myself completely, no part left out. And it's that spirit that I hope to present these the spirit of no part left out, which is, and I actually had a long talk with Tara today, this morning, about um, teaching about sexuality. She said she hadn't done it in her group in Washington, where she has a very big sangha, uh, and she said she saw I was doing it. She said, "Oh, I think I need to teach about that." So, um, so we were talking about it and this kind of um, um, acceptance and the um, suffering that is around sexuality, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which I'll say more about. I I talked a little bit about contemporary teachers in the West: Suzuki Roshi, Suzaki Roshi, Roshi, Mahasi Sayadaw coming. Um, And then the flavor in the insight meditation uh, community culture. And I ended with the story of my first kiss, which I'll repeat again for those of you who weren't here. Um, Because I wanted to include it because I believe, let me, I'll tell this story and then I'll tell you why I include it, which is, I was pretty young, uh, maybe five, I think four, right around 4 or 5, and I was outside late at night, late being like 9 or 9.30 in Detroit on a a hot summer's night, humid, a little sticky thick. The the air is thick. It's actually, it's really nice if you grow up and it's kind of sensuous, the, the humidity, and the sun was setting kind of, you know, reddish, black sky very beautiful, and I was playing with this little girl who um, I didn't know. I'd met her that day, and um, um, she had red curly hair, really carrot top red, and she was eating this um, tomato, and the tomato she had picked from her garden, and it was really this ripe tomato, and she was eating it like an apple, and I'd never seen anybody do that before. I'd always seen cut tomatoes or eaten cut. And I said something to her, and she she offered it to me to try like an apple. And I went and bit into the tomato, and as I was biting into it, she kissed me. (laughs) And it was beautiful. And it was magical. It was mysterious. I'd never been kissed. I didn't even, you know, I kind of knew adults did that, but I didn't know that I would get kissed in, in that way. It was different than your mother kissing you or your father kissing you wasn't the same, and it was, it was lovely. And I start again with this story. I repeat this story because I want to continue with the story of my sex life, as it were, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, with my second kiss, which happened a few years later. And I was, um, I think I was in a first or second grade, And we had just moved, and I didn't know anybody, but I was just meeting kids, and this girl named Debbie Gilman, if anybody knows (laughs) Debbie Gilman, I would love to talk to her, um, lived around the block from me and invited me over to play, and I went, and we were playing, and Debbie Gilman had very curly, dark hair. And and very um, I'm remembering her kind of vividly right at the moment. She was she had a um, kind of um, Mediterranean complexion, darkish, and we were playing and doing something, whatever, innocent. And all of a sudden, she kissed me, and I was surprised. And it was I was a little older now. It was more awkward. I felt it, it actually made me more uncomfortable and she was uncomfortable and we we played a teeny bit more and then I left and that was it. I was like, okay. We did it. We kissed. That was, you know, of course both these kisses were on the cheek even. So but but the next day I went to school, which and again, I didn't know many of the kids I was new there. And Debbie Gilman was telling everybody how I kissed her. And We can laugh about it now.
1: (laughs) But I wasn't
0: laughing at the time. It was actually really different, painful, because kids were making fun of me. You know, it was like, you know, oh, you kissed Debbie Gilman, oh, da da da, you know, that kind of stuff. Boys were making fun of me. And in these two very innocent stories, both of which are very innocent. I think we can see the uh, continuum of what happens around sexuality. That there's the beauty and the mystery and the delight and the aliveness and the freshness and the, uh, really the amazing quality of contact. Uh, and then there's also the pain, uh, um, um, lack of honesty deception, hurt, um, uh, stigma, just in these two little innocent stories, right? And so I would like tonight to begin to look at our experience, not so much the Buddhist experience, although I'll speak still from that perspective. And so to reflect for yourself, first of all, about your own stories, which may start with an innocent kiss or not an innocent kiss. You know, they're really different for each person in this room, but I'm sure that everybody here has experienced some of the delight or beauty of sexuality, of, our, of the eros, of our aliveness and the, the, the bodies, and also the suffering around our sexuality, whether as an adolescent or a young adult or, or now. And so just to reflect for a moment on, uh, on, on your sexual experience and your experience with sexuality, eros, the erotic, and really be willing to just look for a moment, just for yourself, at the continuum of what you've experienced. Does anybody not find some continuum of pleasure and pain, beauty and hurt, um, delight and um, confusion or pain or difficulty? Is there anybody who doesn't find that continuum? So the koan that I read last week, again I'll read it for those of you who weren't here, from the Zen tradition, says, In order to know the way, the the Buddha way, the Dharma way, in perfect clarity, there is one essential point you must penetrate and not avoid, the red thread of passion between our legs that cannot be severed. Face up to the problem, since it is not at all easy to settle. You must address it directly without hesitation or retreat, for how else can liberation come? And so this question of addressing our sexuality, this realm of life which um, seems to be there from birth. this. and so I'm including both the most obvious kind of sexuality, but our sensuality, our aliveness, our, um, the liveness that we express just by being embodied, that the, the whole world expresses, the grasses and the trees or the deer that come by or the turkeys. Um, the liveness that comes, that keeps, um, um, it's kind of an effulgence of life. That keeps appearing over and over and over again. That manifests our world. That we are not in any way, shape, uh, 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 way or shape different or separate of. We are a manifestation of this. What I'm calling eros for our purposes, and sexuality being maybe a, a concentrated uh, expression of that. And. The joy and sorrow of this expression, how much um, pleasure there can be, how much goodness, but also how much pain, how much suffering comes, how much attachment can come. And so tonight what I'd like to do is look a little more at how we might apply some Dharma principles to this realm of our experience so that truly no part is left out. And then I'd like to offer time for questions or comments and see, see what happens. And so I'll begin with um, the first step in the Eightfold Path, which is right view. And right view asks us to begin to look directly at things. It asks us to look at things as they are. It says that as we engage life as it is, we have the possibility for awakening that if we don't engage life as it is, that if we don't engage ourselves as we are, it's it, we don't have a chance in some sense. It's a little like being mindful. You can't be mindful of what's not here. Have you noticed that? Like if you try to be mindful of being happy when you're sad, it doesn't work. Mindfulness, um, uh, sacred presence, uh, the sense of awakening asks for us to deal with reality as it is. And so this view becomes very important. It becomes the ground of our practice. Are we willing to open to this human life? Because this is the vehicle for awakening. The Buddha said it many different ways, one very succinct way, he said, it's in this fathom-long body that we will find Uh, The whole world, and then he also put it in this way, that we'll find suffering, the cause of suffering, and freedom from suffering right here. And so how can we not include our sexuality? It's like trying to not include our feelings, or trying to not include our thoughts, or trying not to include our arm or our hand. And the way this is put in the Tantric tradition, which Tantra means web or weave and really bringing everything in, is that one must rise by that by which one falls. Does that make sense? One must rise by that which one falls. And so we fall around sexuality. Anybody here not falling around sexuality? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just seems to be part of the terrain of learning about sexuality, of discovering sexuality, of navigating a life of different stages of being sexual. You know, it's different at 12 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 and 90. It keeps changing. It's alive sexuality. so, this view, this capacity to look directly is important. This is from a friend of mine who was writing a little bit about sexuality, Zen friend, my friend Albert Cutchins. He said, I see that I've been shy, Oh, he said, I always thought I had an open-minded attitude towards sexuality and an open-minded attitude towards practice. I see that I've been shy about looking at the two together. I've compartmentalized. I think of sex as the richest, most transcendent, common human experience. And for many people, that's how we see it, that it's one of the richest human experiences. And And it has this transcendent quality. I believe it's one reason why human beings really like sexuality. He said, but when it comes to practice, sex is a hindrance, an obstacle, and at very least a distraction. And I think many of us have had that attitude or that split in some way, shape, or form. Um, You know, the teachings on retreat, if you go on a long retreat, are if, you know, lust comes, and it's generally talked about as lust, then you note it. And go back to the breathing. Note it and go back to the breathing. Um, there's not, a, there's rarely, I have never heard a talk on sex at a retreat. And people have a tremendous amount of sexual energy on retreats. Not all the time, but at certain stages of practice or certain stages of retreats, sexual energy can be quite strong. It's very normal. Never, I've never heard a talk on sexuality. I've rarely heard a talk on sexuality at any of the um, classes. I don't know if Jack's done one in a while. Um, You know, I've, I've just started to do these talks in the last couple years. So our willingness to first align with right view be able, willing and able, have the capacity, have the presence, the balance of heart and mind, to begin to turn our attention towards our sexuality, and the sexuality of others, honestly and directly. This is from uh, Daphne Merkin who wrote, everyone lies about sex, more or less, everyone lies about sex, to themselves if not to others to others if not to themselves exaggerating its importance or minimizing its pull and you could reflect for a second i know as a teenage boy lying about sex is just what you do there's I, you know i can i can i would love to meet an enlightened uh, young man who just told the truth at least not when i was growing up maybe I, maybe it's different now but I doubt it. <laughs> and and our own willingness to really look clearly. I'll say one thing personally, um, that as, especially as I've gotten older a little bit with sexuality, what I found one hindrance is really being willing to look directly at sexuality now as opposed to how it's been, mm-hmm. but really willing to look at how is it now. and. And that means um, partly um, looking at the aging process, but it, even um, more for myself, it meant not holding on to how it was. And by that I mean um, and, uh, I'm married and uh, sex in, in a long-term relationship has its own pluses and minuses like any kind of sexuality or its ups and downs or... Um, it's, you know, joys and sorrows, but um, trying to hold to some standard instead of opening to the way things are now. And I mention that here, I'll hopefully talk a little more, because the real life of sexuality, like in any life, is always opening to what's happening now, not how it was, or how it it could have been, how it, it was and it should be again, so that Um, and this is what I feel is a really beautiful Dharma principle, is not letting our knowing get in the way of our not knowing. And and that's what I mean about aging with sex. As one, you know, when one is, you know, whatever it is, when you've started having sex, whether it was 12 or 20, and then in those first years, it's a lot of sense of discovery, of discovery, of discovery. And then at some point, well, you know it. You know the terrain, you know, I know sex. That knowing is a hindrance. And I want to be a little careful here. They have a beautiful saying in Zen, they say, not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. Because it doesn't mean we don't know something. And we may have a richness, a maturity around our sexuality or being involved with others sexually but we don't let that maturity um, veil the immediacy of the moment. We can, it can, we can draw from it as necessary or as appropriate, but it doesn't block the liveness of now. And I'm a little bit jumping ahead, and I'll jump around a little bit. That principle of the liveness of now, which is throughout the Dharma, is another principle that we, we w- might want to consider in terms of our sensuality and our sexuality. This is whether you're being sensual or sexual by yourself or with a long-term partner or, or somebody your the first time. What blocks are being present, awake, in the moment, relaxed? And often there's a tremendous energy with sexuality. And so we want to bring out the principles of mindfulness, of kindness, of really being present with that energy, not simply being swept away, although maybe it, the, the razor's edge is being swept away and not swept away at the same time. Because if it's too um, you don't just want to reflect on sex, right? I mean, it's, that's not exactly the essence of it. Here it's okay to reflect on it. <laughs> So, but I'll go back to view. So, so view, how we think about it. You know, if we think, if there's a lot of judgment around sexuality, it's hard to be open to the reality. There's a lot of fear, it's hard. And so we want to see those things, we want to see our conditioning, so we can begin to work with it to liberate ourselves, to liberate our sensuality, our, the life force. Um, view in the Buddhist teachings conditions our intention. So if our view of our sensuality, our our, um, sexuality is is very embracing, is very accepting, also that view has to include the sensuality, the sexuality of others. Um, I mean, has anybody here ever walked around in the world and realize that everybody you see has sex? Anybody ever have that thought? Yeah, my teacher. I mean, it, it's, everybody does it, <laughs> basically. Um, how do we think about other people? How do we include other people? What's our view? Do we see them as objects? Do we see them as something to satisfy us? You know, what is the view we're holding? Do we see them as beautiful or sacred or um, mysterious and delightful? Do we see them to be, um, do we see sexuality, our own and theirs, as a form of worship or just a form of satisfaction? What's our view? Because that view will condition our intention. And our intention. About, will then condition how we act. So if our intention, <laughs> if we begin to view our practice as very broad and big, then we will intend to, um, to practice in this realm. We will see this realm and we will enact that intention. We will see the realm of sexuality as a realm of practice. And then as we begin to intact, enact that intention, um, to awaken with every realm of our life, at work, in community, in rela- family relationships, um, alone, on retreat, in speech, in sexuality. Then, then this intention to awaken in every area will condition how we act, how we, um, how we enact our sexuality in the world. Which can be very, very broad. Very, very broad. And, and how we enact our sexuality really goes everything from celibacy to you know, kind of doing whatever you want in some sense. But doing whatever you want may have some limitations depending on your uh, understanding of right action. Because right action is grounded in the precepts of not harming. And so this becomes a very important um, Dharma quality to bring into the realm of sexuality. And one um, one of the precepts, the five precepts are basically not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse one's sexuality or create harm through sexuality, not to create harm through our speech or misuse our speech not to create, not to delude the mind and body with intoxicants. And these are all principles of non-harming, of being in the world and living a life of awakening, expressing our awakening, our virtue is the word in in Buddhist practice, through the this principle of of non-harming, of the expression of compassion. And Here's one, one version of the precept on sexuality from Thich Han. He calls it the third mindfulness training. It's about sexual responsibility. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. So this is Tiknat Han's version. Um, it's um, it's probably somewhere in the middle on the continuum, you know. Uh, there's uh, one version of, of the precept on uh, non-harming in terms of sexuality, which is just to be celibate, mostly for monastics, but sometimes utilized by householders. And then, um, and then there's myriad questions, you know, on the other end of the continuum about what's harming. When I last time I did this talk in San Francisco and I stopped in, you know, five or ten more minutes and I took questions, the first question in San Francisco was, well, is rough sex a form of, you know, harming? Okay? S and M. Is S and M breaking the precepts? You can all reflect on that and think of how you might answer that question. It's actually a great question, it's really a, it's not, there's not simple answers around sexuality often. So our action, I'll say a bit, uh, did I mention virtue last week? No. No. Okay, virtue is a really beautiful word. Often it's translated in, uh, not so well as morality. But virtue is a, a much beautiful word that we underutilized. And it has the same root as virility, only it's talking about a power of integrity, the power of our integrity. Um, and and so that's an important part around sexuality, around sexuality from a Buddhist perspective, which is our, our virtue, our integrity, which doesn't mean to be... Um, not have sex. It means to apply these principles of um, um, bringing sexuality within uh, the realm of Dharma, um, practicing non-harming, res- a certain kind of responsibility of honesty. Just being honest sexually with oneself and one's partners can, can really um, uh, take the rug out from so much suffering from a tremendous amount of suffering. If you think for yourself, what like in my little, little teeny innocent example, Debbie Gilman didn't tell the truth about what happened. If she would have told the truth, I may have been a little embarrassed, but I wouldn't have had the suffering that I had because she didn't tell the truth. And you might consider for yourself when somebody didn't tell you the truth, which can be a very great suffering, or when you didn't tell the truth. Now I realize I'm getting into some territory. I want to be careful because it's very easy to be judgmental of our um, delusion around sexuality, or our um, the ways we've acted that haven't been skillful. And that's not guilt is not considered helpful in Buddhism. Wise reflection is considered helpful. Seeing that oh yeah, I blew it you know, or I acted in a way that was totally selfish. That's considered a, a skillful reflection, but like, oh, I'm a horrible person, I did this and I'm feeling guilty for the rest of my life, that's actually not considered skillful because it doesn't free you, it is not compassionate. Uh, I would, at one time I remember hearing Jack talk about sexuality, he said, who here hasn't made a fool of themselves around sexuality? Or who here hasn't done something, you know, in terms of wrong speech or selfish around sexuality? Most of us have. So let's not invoke the judge here. Let's invoke kindness as the way, as another Dharma principle in terms of working with our sexuality or our, our sexual history. So in non-harming, a simple version of the precept is, I vow not to misuse my sexuality. And Reb Anderson talks about it this way. He says, if we turn away from our passion, then we freeze and are harmed. If we just just act from passion, we may harm others. What we need is intimacy. Intimacy with ourself and others. Real intimacy. Intimacy that has respect that has kindness that has care and then I don't know the form your sexuality will take it might be by yourself, it might be alone, it might be celibate uh, it might be with one person for the rest of your life it might be with more than one person. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I said I repeat what I said about compassion just that Oh, the passion, just now. If we turn away from our passion, then we freeze and are harmed. Okay? That one from Reb Anderson. So, there's always a lot more to say about sex. I think I'll take a few questions. We'll see where we're going, and then maybe I'll add some more. Talk about, Talk about desire and sex. Talk put desire down. Right. Very good. Great question. So, desire and sex, and we and what's your name? Millie. Millie says we always put desire down. Um, okay. In Buddhism, and there is is a is uh, a certain focus on desire and looking at desire and understanding the um, way desire leads to attachment. And so desire is um, sometimes viewed very pejoratively or at at least gingerly, right? Watch out for desire. Um, Now, desire can be its own path, as anybody who's read Rumi knows, right? the What may be interesting for us as we begin to look at our sexual desires and that deep is what is that? To really allow it. So one way I might consider it is not to think negatively of desire or pejoratively of desire, but what does it mean to uh, be mindful of desire? What does it mean to bring it in fully? What does it mean to let it rip in a contemplative sense? And when I say let it rip, this is my own personal little guideline on retreat. Let it rip means not to suppress and not to act. It's a little bit the razor's edge of practice. Not to deny, not to repress, not to suppress, but but to really see what is that energy. And that energy, at least what I've seen, at root is always pure. Even, it can be very diluted for quite a while. And so in that way, we can begin to liberate our desire. Now, in terms of sexuality, there's desire. The the flower moves towards the sun. You ever notice that? Whichever window you put the flower in, it, it starts to turn towards the sun. It's the eros of life meeting the eros of life. And we're part of that, and we're going to express it. And partly, our desire is part of that, especially in our sexuality. Are we at the mercy of our desire? That 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 probably raised eyebrows for Melly, you know, like, oh yeah, I know that one. And that that may be the the key piece in terms of harming and not harming, and in terms of both ourself. You notice, just reflect for a minute about have you ever been hurt by your own desire. And then have you ever hurt others through your desire? And then if it's the appropriate situation, then desire is beautiful.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Other questions? or Way in the back. Let's see if we can get you a microphone. That's it. He held it what? Very sacred. Yes. And uh, I can't say, after
1: you know, watching the uh, birth of my three children, it was such a thing of magnificence
0: that mm-hmm. but
1: that kind of connection hasn't crossed my mind as well. Mm-hmm. I was wondering uh,
0: what your thoughts were on that. Why, why do you wonder?
1: Um, Well, I can tell
0: you that that sort of uh, thinking has caused me to wonder. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, uh, I'll I'll actually say something about uh, I have a daughter who just turned 21, Mm -hmm. kind of amazing. Um, And uh, I remember that. when we were, we were consciously um, uh, invoking her before she was born. And, and I thought, oh, this is what sex is about. Like there was some, uh-huh, oh, this is why you do it. It's like, this is what happens. And it was a little startling to me in some way. And so I think that's one truth, that there's something quite sacred about sex and procreation. But I don't think it's the only truth. And I don't think it's the only sacred quality of sexuality. I think it's one sacred quality of sexuality. I think that human beings are sacred. And I think there's uh, many expressions of that uh, sacredness. Um, and as my friend wrote, that sexuality is a, it has this beautiful transcendent quality to it. Um, and that can come in many different flavors and so I both appreciate that view, but I don't feel limited to that view. And, you know, I'm speaking personally. I'm not saying what the Buddha would have said or anything like that. Please.
2: Hmm. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about possessiveness mm-hmm. and sexuality with one's partner, because... Um, I've definitely had a variety of experiences where uh, I felt very threatened by the sexual energy of my partner, um, and he, he's felt very threatened by mine. And no. although we don't act on it mm-hmm. uh, except with each other, it's definitely become like a, a, a derisive force mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, I find it um, destroying intimacy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, any words of advice on how to deal with that specific issue because it's okay. a really difficult one. Yeah,
0: great question. I remember I forgot to preface the talk tonight just to say I'm not a sexpert or sex expert, or but I will say a few things in terms of dharma, um, um, and that I didn't say before. One one is that um, it's a very vulnerable area for us, our sexuality. Extremely vulnerable area, tender area, um, um, be- beautiful area. So for some people, it's very important to have a container that feels safe. Mm. It's like having a, a sacred place, and then and then one can really enter very fully. And um, when that's threatened, it can be very hard. Now. Um, I, I don't know that I've met many people who like, you know, get together and marry and then never look at anybody else or never have desire for anybody else or never want anybody else or have strong feelings for anybody else, um, you know, from Jimmy Carter on down. He said, if you don't, you know, if, Actually, I have the quote. He said, I've looked at a lot of women in, with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. Uh, this is something God recognizes that I do and have done and God forgives me for it. Um, it can be quite an interesting investigation if the container is strong enough to really investigate our fear around it. Um, you know, and what 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 moves from... Um, you know, and where do we feel, where do we start judging ourselves if there's attraction to someone else? Where does our own self-judgment or a sense of unworthiness around sexuality start to come in if, there's, if our partner has some um, appreciation of somebody else? Um, what I've found is that if, if we can appreciate together, it's really fine. It actually loses the charge. Uh, if I can say to my wife, wow, that woman was just beautiful, you know, and you know, and she'll sometimes say, oh yeah, she really, she is, she's really beautiful, that it'll lose, not only, it's not that she, her non-reaction actually makes it just not a big deal. Now, when there is the reaction, then we need to communicate, and so right speech becomes really important. Um, and again, there's no easy way. But that that directness of communication and not judging oneself. If one feels uh, jealous, not judging that, because uh, one often will feel like, uh, "Oh, I shouldn't feel jealous because I should be open-hearted." And you know, as soon as you hear the "shoulds," watch out. You know, as soon as you hear that, that's generally suffering of some kind. Um, you know, we all get jealous. That's pretty normal. Um. So I I hope that helps a little. Mm. Mm. What I found too is that as relationship can deepen, this is for those of us who are in long-term relationships, as relationships deepen um, and the trust becomes deeper, then it's just not such a big deal. Especially if we feel like the person's not going to act on it. So, again, I hope that's a little bit helpful.
2: Here. Yes, yeah. I, I, th- I really wanted to thank you for bringing this topic to to Rock. And I really think it takes courage. And I really appreciate that. Because I really haven't heard many Dharma talks between and you. Know um, I have a question that I know that a few of you have been in robes and, you know, were monks for some time. And uh, so I'm curious whether, you know, being celibate for a while, whether that was challenging and that one of the reasons to be house <coughs> uh was perhaps,
1: you know, the lack of, of sexuality or whether that didn't really play so much a role.
0: Well, it didn't play so much of a role for me because I never took robes. Um, So I've been celibate at some points in my life, but not officially celibate in that way. Um,
1: um,
0: And I'm I'm just reflecting a little bit about some of my friends who've taken robes. Um, Loneliness a certain kind of deep loneliness, in terms of contact, um, that played some, some part. Um, but also it's, it's, it's karma. Who's drawn and who's not. And I want to say something here about monasticism and celibacy, because celibacy is really a viable option in terms of enlightened sexuality. And some of the freest people I know in terms of their sexuality, are celibate. They enjoy their sexuality. They can enjoy other people's sexuality. They just don't act on it. And and they're kind of and they're juicy. They're juicy people. They're not dry. Uh, and I mean they're quite quite sincere. And actually, I'll just say, Ajahn Amaro is an example of that. What a sweet, juicy, warm guy. And he he can. Um, <laughs> You know, I've, I, I don't know if I should say this, <laughs> I've seen him flirt a little bit, and you know, he enjoys, he enjoys, but he doesn't act on it. Or um, uh, David Stendelras, the Christian uh, contemplative, who's just a, a living heart, really, juicy heart, he said this, something to this effect. Um, He said when he realized that contemplative life meant he was going to love everybody, he realized he was either going to have to sleep with everybody or be celibate. (laughs) And he thought it would be a little less complicated to be celibate. (laughs) But it doesn't stop the love and and the eros, the eros of life. And so for us at different stages in our life, I know some young people who... Who take vows of celibacy in their life for a year or six months or, you know, a couple years, or um, adults, you know, older, 30, 40, 50, you know, who take vows of celibacy for a period of time, just to see what, what's that like, to not act on that energy, but to allow it very fully and to bring it into the realm of awakening and let it, let it, uh, its, um, <laughs> oh I've got a, I'm thinking of Sokni Rinpoche, he always talks about the juice of life, the, you know, let it moisturize you, it's like moisturizer, he says, en um, jouissance in French, they, that you actually don't need to act on it in order to feel it fully, to let it rip. And so celibacy becomes a very viable option if one has this view and understanding and then action. Okay,
1: Okay, so then what happens to the person after they decide they no longer want to be celibate? Do they suddenly become
0: less enlightened? No. So I'm not saying celibacy is equal with enlightenment. I'm saying celibacy is one form of practice around sexuality.
2: young people who took vows of celibacy, then decided to not be celibate anymore.
0: You know? Oh, absolutely. So,
2: how
1: did that incorporate into their life? That?
0: Um, I think, from the um, um, thinking of one person, very, uh, that what happened was um, there was a slightly different relationship. There was less compulsion around sexuality, there was more. Um, uh, um, um, consideration in terms of enacting one's sexuality and then enacting it very fully when one does enact. Um, So it's not to cut off but it's really to bring it into this realm of non-harming much more because the person had really harmed themselves and others before they did that. that. Does that clarify a little bit? Good, thank you. Here. Yeah. Oh, I, I just want to share I I happened to listen to uh KPF show and it was on sexuality and there was a woman counselor in these and, and, and she she decided to be she wants she wants to never be monogamous anymore. And she, she what? Doesn't want to be monogamous uh-huh. anymore. And and her book was the
1: ethical Uh uh-huh. And and it was it really touched on a many for
0: so, uh, he's recommending a book called The Ethical Slut <laughs> which, which I've heard of but I don't know anything about, so I can't say anything either way. It's, um, like I say, there are many paths around sexuality. Um, w- w- notice your views and opinions. Very important, you know, first of all, of yourself. Your own views and opinions about yourself and your sexuality, and then of course other people. I
1: want to
0: second the woman who said to be grateful for you speaking about this. And of course there's any culture that uh we know how to talk about things like money. But sexual. No, we don't, we don't know how to talk about, <laughs> 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 about money. But they're very close, actually.
1: And childhood sexuality have commented in our culture, we don't even have words to teach children that are not pejorative or negative about sexuality. When mm-hmm. I hear you speaking about sexuality, I'm delighted that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm very cognizant that it's hugely abstract, and that the word celibacy you know, just pushes everything in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Really? And, uh, okay, that's you know,
1: interesting to here. Mm-hmm. in a country with a puritan mm-hmm. legacy, which mm-hmm. we, of course, all are encumbered with, whether or not we ever mm-hmm. went to England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, uh, basically I want to just ask you to wrap up. Uh, you know, obviously, every tradition you know, is limited in all sorts of different ways. Uh, that's true in my experience of the culture, of the tradition. Uh, how do you feel about the element of culture I'm you know, thinking about like, all the years I've come here, this is the first talk, that I've really heard
0: about this, is it more attributable to you know, being in the United States, in our heritage, you know, is it something to do with British you know, really teaching? is it about a desire, or is it some sort of, you know, commemoration of all that <laughs> It's a big question. I hope people can hear it, because I don't think I can summarize so much. Um, <laughs> except the, the, the impact of culture, and how things have come to be here, in terms of sexuality a, a little bit. Uh, there's so many different levels I could begin to answer your question. Mm-hmm. I love that quote about, you know, the uh, Puritans came to find more restriction than they could find in England. <laughs> you know, um, um, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, I know that sexuality is A main topic for most people for a decent part of their life. I have no idea why we talk about it so little here. Um, It would never get talked about in a Dharma talk in the East except as um, to overcome one's sexuality. Hearing you say now you're the second person who said just to bring up celibacy valences in, in that direction really uh, startles me, and I'm glad to hear it, because I don't want to put that valence. I, I mostly was trying to open up that, because uh, my sense is I don't talk about that positively. And so I want to make sure that's a, a possibility, but only one possibility. Um, I was a little concerned in my talk last week. I was a little at all, in, in some way, have put a negative valence on the uh, celibacy of Buddhist monks. I don't want to do that. I I think there is a real um, way and path to to use and utilize celibacy around sexuality. But I'm much more of the Zen school of bringing it in, fully living it, uh, including it, uh, learning how to talk about it, how to enact it skillfully, uh, how to teach about it, etc., etc. Yeah, when I think of all my teachers, you know, they all had sex. <laughs> you know, all my western teachers and, you know, most of them are still having sex. It's it's part of their life, it's part of their practice. Um Here, how about a poem about celibacy from EQ? Who's, who's a rogue. I want to just say that. He's a rogue. Not everybody wants to follow EQ, but he, he says, follow the rule of celibacy blindly and you are no more than a donkey. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly how he said it, but um, you're no more than a donkey. Break it and you are only human. The spirit of Zen is manifest in ways as countless as the sands of the Ganges. And in some sometimes I think that's how sexuality, our sexuality expresses itself as many different ways as our people in this room. In terms of preference, in terms of uh, gender, in terms of um, um, uh, pleasure, in terms of joy, in terms of sorrow. Um, He goes on, he says, every newborn is the fruit of the conjugal bond. For how many eons have the secret blossoms been budding and fading? You know, I teach sometimes. Uh, or, or one summer, I got called into U.S. Uh, U.S.F. in San Francisco to do some upward-bound programs. I used to teach for their. Uh, Staff, I used to do mindfulness teachings and they called me and they wanted me to teach uh, uh, mindfulness to basically teenagers um, who um, I had an hour for about 50 teenagers and there were three different classes. And so sometimes I like challenges like that so I said, okay, I'll come in. And it was really hard to get these kids' attention. They were like, you know, basically, who are you? You know, and I was coming from work. I was a therapist, so I'd come in my jacket and tie, and they were like, "Oh, you know, whatever." And um, <laughs> so I was trying to think, how can I get their attention? You know, because that was the first thing I needed to do. So finally, I said, "Do you want to have good sex?" <laughs> You're reminding me of this when you said teaching sex, and they were like, "What?" I said, "Oh yeah, do you want to have good sex?" I, meditation can teach you how to have good sex. <laughs> I, I didn't tell this story for a number of years. And, and then all of a sudden these boys, these teenage boys were like getting up on the desk like this. and you know, They were like, oh yeah, teach us how to meditate.
1: <laughs> and so
0: I talked to them about being in their bodies and being embodied. And that if you want to enjoy your sexuality, you need to be there. And it was a great inroad into teaching mindfulness practice. And it's not just true for them. It's true for us, too. To really not just get in our bodies once or at some time, but over and over again to let this embodiment be what's this aliveness be known very directly. That's a little just... Free associating from your question. Last question, please.
2: I just wanted to make a comment on what the gentleman before said and your response to it. And I, I think it's a really important comment. Like you were talking about cultural constructs, to mm-hmm. try to get outside of, of the constructs of our own culture mm-hmm. and, and to and understand the tremendous impact of Puritanism mm-hmm. on us and how it inhibits us talking about our sexuality Mm -hmm. outside of abstract terms Mm -hmm. and being able to manifest it in such a way that maybe we can feel that fullness of being one in the moment Mm -hmm. in in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And if you start to look at other cultures, you know, you find that they take a very different approach to it and really enjoy other people enjoying their sexuality, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Even the act of a kiss, to watch it, people mm-hmm. watching it live when I was living in other culture, see that as a very beautiful thing. So mm. you know, that may be something to, in other words, to, to be mindful in the moment, you may have to dispel right. some of the impact of puritanism
0: on us. Great. Uh, thank you. I think that helps summarize it very well. To be mindful in the moment, in our bodies, we may have to do some reflection and investigation in in terms of the bigger cultural conflicts that condition us, or that have conditioned us, including the Puritan ethic. And what's your name? Pauline. Pauline said, you know, in in the culture she lived in, that you could really enjoy other people's sexuality and sensuality, and that was very common if there was a kiss. And I hope you all enjoy seeing people kiss. And I, I would like to give you permission to enjoy, I think that's a beautiful thing to, for us to enjoy and appreciate. Great. Here's something. I'm going to end. Actually, something from the Jewish tradition, and it's it's and it was um, it's about Jewish meditation or prayer in terms of desire, lust, you know, passion. This is from the Baal Shem Tov, I forget, the master of the good name, I think that means, who said, when you are praying, or we could say meditating, and you have the thought of a beautiful woman, or beautiful man, or beautiful whatever, turns you on. When you have the thought of a beautiful, and lust comes, such a thought comes to you begging to be raised, begging to be raised. And you raise it by saying, oh, where does the beauty, where does the charm, where does that delight, where does the attraction come from? It comes from the source of beauty. He would say, don't get scared of it. Don't push it away. Such symmetry, such beauty. What was it in this ideal ideal that drew you on? Where did it come from? It didn't make itself. It's so sublime, so beautiful. That's why it draws you in. So take it back to its divine root. This is the, the raising up, or I don't even like to use that word raising up. It implies our sexuality is lower in some way. But it's really going into the essence of our sexuality and our sensuality is to begin to see it not just from the relative perspective, but from the absolute pers- perspective, the source of sexuality, the source of all of us, the source of all of this. So again, there's, there's so much that could be said. You know, Maybe I'll do a day long at some point. Um, and, we'll, and we'll talk more directly even, less abstractly, more intimately at some point. But thank you all for your attention and your uh, patience and your respectfulness. And I again apologize if I offended anybody in any way, which is easy to do around sexuality, because there's so many different areas. You know, I didn't cover severe trauma around sexuality or sexual abuse. There's so much. So, but thank you very much.